pray together. Our Father and our God, we acknowledge your greatness. We are gathered to worship you, to express our awareness of your glory and grace, to challenge each other, to serve you with wholeheartedness and passion. And our Father, we are grateful this morning for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that men and women can be made right with God, can have sins forgiven, a relationship put in place for all of eternity with the God of creation. And so, Father, it is our desire to turn our attention right now to your word and to sit and hear attentively what you have to say to us and the implications of your truth for our lives. Would you enable us by the power of your spirit to welcome your truth and to live it out in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I felt that because once again Sunday falls on 9-11 that it would not make sense to ignore that reality. But as I was thinking about it, basically anyone under 30 years of age doesn't much know what I'm talking about. 21 years ago, We all remember, or those 30 plus remember, what took place, and that lives were lost, and that we live in an age of terror. We live in an age of theological turmoil. We live, live in an age of transitions of great leadership, like what took place this week. You have to be over 70 to have experienced a different sovereign over our country in your life. She truly was, Queen Elizabeth truly was a defender of the faith in her life. And we wonder what's next for us in the transition to another generation. And all of this causes at times our lives to become uncertain and unpredictable, and we know they are. And all of that is true, but over against all of the uncertainty and unpredictability of life and the sorrows and challenges that we face based on circumstances and all of that, over against all of that and the memory of 9-11 and, and all of the sorrows, is the supremacy of Jesus Christ for the believer. That we understand the greatness of our Lord. If you remember, and I, I remember it well, in fact, 9-11 was the first day that I started working here at Calvary. And I remember everything about that day. Where I was, what I was doing, who I was with. And if you remember, for a brief moment, following that, the aftermath of that great tragedy in New York City on that sunny Tuesday morning, we all wondered if the insanity of the world had finally caused a spiritual turning point. Because churches were full. People were very conscious of life and death, and there was a a seriousness that fell upon North America at least for a brief shining moment and then everything went back to the way it was and in fact over these past 21 years we are further and deeper away from spiritual excellence than ever and I think all of us wondered over this last couple of years you know when the uncertainty of gathering was foisted on us. Maybe we won't ever be able to be together again. And oh, won't we 
Won't we be glad when we can be together? Won't we never take this for granted again? Won't the churches be full? Because we will be reminded that it can be taken away from us in an instant. How quickly we go back to the way we are and were. And There's a great letter in the New Testament that I wanted to center our attention on for the next few weeks. It's a letter to a people called Colossians. I'd invite you to open up your Bibles because there's a great parallel between the people of Colossae and the people of Canada, at least the Church of Canada. In a few short years after writing this letter, the Apostle Paul to the people of Colossae, there was a massive earthquake that destroyed the city. It was never again rebuilt. In an almost parallel reality, this fledgling church of Colossae was under threat of extinction because of the tremendous pressure upon them of the prevailing culture, which was antithetical to Christianity. In fact, um, Paul gives us a hint, which we'll save for another day in terms of mining its implications, but he gives us a hint in in the second chapter in verse um, 8 when he talks about, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. So what was the issue for the early church, this fledgling brand new church? It was deceptive and hollow and deceptive philosophy. that depends on human tradition and following the science rather than Christ. So it doesn't say that in my Bible. The Bible says basic principles of the world, right? Basic principles of the world? Yeah, we're going to find out in a few weeks. In this case, modernizing that phrase would be following the science. Rather than Christ. Beloved, hear this, rather than Christ. Andrew Breitbart writes this, politics is downstream of the culture. It is the culture that is really the driving force in American life. That's true. And increasingly and sadly in the postmodern church, I would submit to you that postmodern Christianity is also downstream of culture. That culture is driving the church. The 20s, and I'm not talking about the 19 roaring 20s, I'm talking about the 20s that we're in, have been very disruptive to the church. Years of social or the social and moral, uh, years of erosion of social and moral uh, um, excellence has been eroded by decades and decades of relativizing truth. And we're now seeing it in, in almost lightning speed come upon us. And the degrading effect of that, the disruptive effect of that in the church. So how are we to handle the attacks of the encroaching culture, which we know is upon us? The attacks on what we believe. And and that's why um, I believe God has led me to to lead you into Colossians for the next while. I, I just feel in my heart that we need a reset in our hearts on the supremacy of Christ. It seems to me coming off of our Sermon on the Mount, we need to be reminded of who we are and what we have. And who our great Savior is. And what he means to us. And what we have. And and, and all of that to just sort of regather ourselves. And and re-solidify who we are. So how how are we going to handle this? Some are proposing a call to arms. 
the church at war. I don't know, as I read my Bible, I think there's only one last war. In Revelation 19, where the rider, the great rider on the white horse comes back and destroys the godless nations with the word of his mouth. That strikes me as the last great war. Until then, we carry on. So I'm not there. Others are calling for a systematic accommodation to the modern lifestyles and values all around us. A capitulation of the church to a culture-driven theology. I'm definitely not there. You all know that. And I trust you aren't there as well. And in fact, churches and people by the droves are leaving churches like that. And good on them. But the scriptures, which lead the way for us and show us the way, are calling us, I think, to become reacquainted with the uniqueness and the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for your life and the resulting steadfast commitment to God's grace in all its truth. That's where we're going. And Paul centers this entire letter on a most outstanding reality found in the verse 9 of chapter 2, where he states, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That is an amazing verse. That's an outstanding verse that absolutely declares categorically who Jesus is. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's why we've entitled this series, Christ, God Visible. That's who Christ is. The greatness and supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ are outlined in this letter for us and the call on our lives. How important is this for us? You know, as we launch into this series, by way of introduction, how important is it that we understand the nature of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel, the timeless truth of the gospel? Well, I want to give you four quick important reasons why this series should be important to you. You don't want to miss a week. If you're online, you don't want to miss watching this. The first is this. If you're not fully convinced of the truth and what is true, you will struggle to recognize error and reject it. If you don't hold uncomfortable theology to be sound truth, you will feel free to eject offending teachings. Third, if you are tentative and shaky, you will be toppled by opposition. And finally, when days are difficult, you will turn to what you find most secure. Our world medicates itself on human solutions and human chemical solutions and other things. But God's people who live in this fallen world, who live with all kinds of difficult circumstances, are called to a higher call and can and must live with a higher security in Christ. So let's dive into the text. It's Colossians chapter 1. I want to look at the first eight verses this morning. By the way, if Paul were writing today, he could very easily have written this letter to the church in Oshawa or in Durham or in Canada. So as you read this, when he locates it, the church at Colossae, in your heart and in your mind, think about the church in Oshawa at the corner of Ritson and Roslyn. He's writing to us. He's writing to you this morning. This truth endures. And I trust will be an immense encouragement to you today, as it has been to me in preparing to talk to you about it. <clears throat> Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you all over the world. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. This is the Word of God. So from the first couple of verses, there are some powerful truths delivered to us to encourage and strengthen us in difficult and challenging times. Circumstances are difficult for you. It answers questions like, who are you, says who, and what do we have? Now look at this with me. This is so powerful. Paul says to the holy and faithful brothers. Addressing us this morning to the holy and faithful brothers. And you know brothers means brothers and sisters. It's a, it's a title, a relationship with God. He's actually saying here <clears throat> the word saints. Holy and saints is interchangeable when you translate it into English. He's talking here about being saints. Saints, meaning set apart to belong to Christ. Now look at, embrace this for yourself this morning. You have been set apart to belong to Christ, a saint. Now there's a, that word means a special moral quality about you, but it primarily is talking about who you really are, how you can be addressed, the title that you have. You are a saint. Not a Dutch or a, Dutch, uh, a duchess or, or a lord or a lady or all of that. You're a saint belonging to Jesus Christ. Now, what, this was particularly significant to this group of people because at the time of the writing of this, this was, a, as I said, a, a brand new church of Gentiles. But there was a very large community of Jews that lived there as well who were part of the diaspora, who was scattered throughout. And they were not accepting of this new group of people called Christians. And part of the challenge that was going on, and as we find out later on, is how insecure they were being made, how insecure the Christians were being made to feel by the Jews who would not accept them and were rejecting them and we're calling them back to Judaism. And when Paul sends a letter and calls them saints, we need to understand that 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 was a title that was reserved for the Old Testament people of God. So the Jews were of the mindset that they were the only saints in the earth. When they were to read this letter and find out that the Gentiles were the saints, were saints of Christ, for, for the Gentiles, this was an immensely uh, and profoundly encouraging statement that, that by God's direction in Paul's life, who is writing us this letter, God is accepting us as called the people of God, the saints of God. This made, it was very encouraging to them. So they were set apart to belong to Christ And by calling them faithful, they were doing it. They were living it out. They were living for Christ. And this was a great commendation for them. But notice they were also called called in Christ. Literally, it it should say, in Christ, in Colossae. So the location, the place where they lived was Colossae. But the real location of their lives, the real, what really defined them and their identity was that they were in Christ. And we've talked about this before over the years, of the greatness of that title, to be called in Christ. 
the, be, to be called in Christ in contrast to, to everything else. It trumps all other things. It trumps culture. It trumps ethnicity. It trumps heritage. It trumps location. It trumps the country you're from. It, it trumps the, the lineage of your family. It trumps all other gods. Being in Christ trumps all other things. And this is how they were being described. It defines who they were. You may be into many things, but this is the most destiny determining in possible, is to be classified as in Christ. And then, of course, who says this? Well, it's Paul. Wait a minute. The guy who was murdering Christians just a few years ago? Yeah, that Paul. I find it fascinating as he opens up this letter and says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, this is probably about 20 years after the crucifixion of Christ. So roughly the period of time since 9-11 took place, roughly. And as I said before, I remember every single thing about it. And so do many of you. When Paul says Christ Jesus, people reading this are like, you mean the, the man who was crucified and died? That Jesus? Yeah, that, that Jesus. I was there. I was part of that. I, I know about his death. And here I am writing on his behalf to say, follow him, the living risen Christ. Now, you know, here we are 2,000 years later. None of us have been there. But when Paul is writing this, the one who formerly killed Christians, murdered Christians, is now a poster child for the transforming work of Jesus in his life, who is now a faithful servant, encouraging people all over the, that part of his world to follow Christ. That Christ Referring to that Jesus, who he knew about 20 years before. And he talks about his testimony to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. Listen to how he puts it. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. Wait a minute, again, is this not the man who was killing Christians? Yes. But he was set apart from his mother's womb to be called by the grace of God to become a servant of the living Christ. I want to pause here for a second to encourage you may have dear family members or friends, people you've been praying for for years who are not following Christ, don't know Christ. There was a time when Paul didn't know Christ, wasn't serving the living God. Yet, he was on the mind of God and in the heart of God. And the plan for him was to know God. And we have every reason to continue to be encouraged by people around us who don't know the Lord, who might be the same as Paul, called from their mother's womb to someday serve the living Christ with a passion. If Paul, the murderer of Christians, could one day serve Jesus Christ, then yes, so could one of your family members or one of your friends who you've been burdened for for years and years. So, beloved, don't give up on praying for those around you who don't yet serve Christ. So who says so? Paul says so. By the will of God 
to testify to Christ Jesus, the man who was recently crucified, but was raised from the dead. And I have seen him, Paul says. I have seen him. I'm an apostle. Apostles had to have seen Jesus. You couldn't call yourself an apostle unless you had seen Jesus. He encountered Jesus himself. I've seen the man who died and is risen again. I've seen him. And my little buddy, Timothy, is corroborating what I'm telling you. And to all of you, Paul says, grace and peace. May God's undeserved favor rest on you and his perfect peace keep you from our Father. So it says here, from God our Father. The warmth of that promise as we are surrounded by painful circumstances, the loving promise here is that we are offered the grace of God and his peace because he's our loving father. May that hold you fast in the dark night of painful circumstances. So I want to give you three quick reads out of uh, the next uh, few verses, the next five verses or so, about how how to swamp the onslaught of the surrounding culture. And there's one word. Be, well, it's two words now. Be thankful. Thankfulness. Saying thankfulness? Yes, thankfulness. Paul comes, launches out in this letter with the antidote to discouragement and insecurity and frustration and fear, be thankful. Okay, so how is Thanksgiving going to swamp the onslaught of the surrounding culture? How's that gonna happen? Three things he says here. Look at this, verse three. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because, here's the reason, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, and this faith and love springs from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. There it is. Thankful because of the hope you have. Thankful for the hope of the truth of eternal life that we heard about, the gospel, now being evidenced in our lives. Beloved, listen, we've, we've all been through a season of rain and wind and floods that we talked about last week. Some of us, just because of being systems in crisis imposed on us, Others of us, because of family crisis or health crisis or whatever's happened in our lives, we've been through a difficult season of time. And, and nothing seems to be necessarily abating in the, in the idea of difficult seasons in our life, particularly because we see the culture eroding so quickly in terms of its moral ethics, which are obviously going to be in a collision course and are in a collision course with Christianity. So increasingly, we are going to find ourselves more and more like the people in the letters that Paul is writing. And what I want you to notice, and this is important, is the Apostle Paul doesn't say the solution and the antidote to how you're feeling, whether you're feeling discouraged or hurt or pain in pain or struggling with what's going on and the circumstances around you, he never says, nor does he even pray about changing circumstances. The circumstances that are difficult in your life may never change this side of eternity. Now you're saying, where's the encouragement coming? When's that coming? Here, listen. Their hope wasn't to be put on the changing of circumstances in this fallen world. Their hope was to be placed 
in the promise that was stored up for them in heaven because of the truth of the gospel. Our hope is not in the changing circumstances around us because they may not change. Our hope is steadfast and certain in the promise that Jesus Christ has made to us to keep us to eternity to be with him. The promise of what is stored up for us in eternity. That's what the hope is. What's stored up for us in heaven where moth and rust and troubles and circumstances and people can't get at to ruin it and take it away and destroy it. That can't be taken from you. That holds fast. In a little while, the writers of Scripture say, in a little while, the, the, the pain and suffering and persecution and trouble may go on, but in a little while, in comparison to eternity, in a little while, that hope that's stored up for you is going to be your reality and experience for all eternity. Now think about it, beloved. What hope do people have who don't know Jesus Christ? What hope do they have? The only hope that people have who don't know Jesus Christ on any given day is that somehow the circumstances in this fallen world will somehow, in some way, in some lucky way, fall in their favor. That's it. That's all they have. That somehow this fallen world will turn in their favor. That's it. On the other hand, we, Paul says, we, as those in Christ, saints of Christ, in Christ, under the grace and peace of a loving Father, are kept for eternity by what is stored up for us by what Jesus Christ paid for with his blood that we might have salvation for all eternity, that he, we might move from death to life and be with him forever. And so he says, those who know this, those whose hope is steadfast in what is stored up from them in heaven have faith in Christ it's interesting that this, this sort of turns on the evidence of our belief in the promise that Christ has made to us of eternal life. Those who believe in that live by faith in Jesus Christ every day of their lives. That's what he says here, right? He says the faith and the hope that spring from the hope you have. So whatever the circumstances are in our life, however difficult they are, the evidence that we are not placing our hope in changing circumstances, but in the hope that is stored up for us in eternal life, is by our faith in Jesus Christ, that we remain steadfast, that we don't turn away from him when things get difficult. We actually turn to him. We turn deeper into him because we are in Christ and he is our hope. Faith in Christ. We are certain that the Lord who died for us and rose again will bring us with him. In the scriptures, Jesus himself said, because I live, you're muttering. Because I live, you will live also. That's on the, that has to be on the tip of our tongues at all times. The promises that Jesus has made to us. The circumstances may be horrific. But Jesus told me, because I live, you will live also. He's talking about eternity, beloved. What he has stored up for us based on his resurrection from the dead as first fruits of those who also will rise with him. Not only that, do we have faith in Christ, but he says we, the evidence that you have hope in heaven is your love for the brothers, your, your love for one another springs from this hope. The evidence that you and I are not bogged down in our circumstances and, and belligerent and 
and, and nasty and unhappy and frustrated in our circumstances is our hope in what we have in Christ, which manifests itself in our self-giving love for each other. We love the saints steadfastly. It's not natural, it's supernatural. In fact, at the end of verse 8, it says, this love in the Spirit, it is a fruit of the Spirit. It comes from the fullness of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives to love one another. This love knits us together in a profound and powerful way. If I've been discouraged about one thing over this last little while, it is how miserably we did this. How miserably we didn't love each other. How quickly we turned on each other and turned from each other and over very minor inconveniences in life compared to other places in the world that are so devastated. It took virtually nothing for us to come unglued. And that tells me one thing. That tells me that our hope isn't in heaven, our hope is in this world. That's why we turned on each other. Our hope was based on our circumstances. Our hope was based on our comfort. Our hope is based on what we have. Instead of what we have in heaven. Instead of what we've been promised. Instead of who we're supposed to be. Instead of the example and advertisement we were supposed to be to the world. Look at, look at these people. They're so different from us. We weren't different at all. In many cases, we were leading the way. How simple, how, how little did it take for us to pull apart from each other and move on from each other? Now, I understand if the Lord geographically moves you, we move on to somewhere else. That's how it happens. But to be in the same geography and move away from each other because we were slighted somehow? Because our, thin, our skin is so thin? That that's all that it takes? That, that, that's how strong our love is for each other? That's how, that's how bonded we are with each other in Christ? It's just a little bit of disagreement? I don't know how your family operates, but I, I'm constantly disagreeing with my kids. Or maybe I should put it another way. They're constantly disagreeing with me. <laughs> we have some great drag, drag them out, uh, uh, ar you know, arguments or discussions or whatever you want to call them. And I love them to death. I think they love me the same way. I don't know where they all are. Can I get a witness? <laughs> I'd never think of not loving them. And we should not think of not loving, I don't know, like double negatives, we should never think of not loving our brothers and sisters either. If our hope really is in heaven, where we're going to be with each other forever. We are knit together to bring each other benefit. And the world is to notice. I'm sure the Lord's going to give us a do-over. I kind of just feel it. Because it's going to get worse, not better. So we failed, in my opinion, in the hors d'oeuvre. We better not fail in the main course because we're going to be all we have. We're going to be all we have. And he's thankful, secondly, for the glorious results of the gospel. Look at that has come to you. The gospel has come to you all over the world. This gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. 
the gospel, the glorious results of the truth that a man or a woman can be made right with God. People who were sinful and wayward and eternally doomed and eternally damned and dead can be brought to life through Jesus Christ. This truth, this glorious gospel. Why is it glorious? Because it comes from God. It's his good news. Why is it glorious? Because it changes lives. Why is it glorious? Because it rescues people from sin and makes them alive in Jesus Christ. Why is it glorious? Because it brings glory to God. In all of its manifestations, God made a way. And as long as human civilization exists, this unchanging truth remains, that Jesus Christ died for sinners, and we are sinners, and he rose again to rescue us from death and enable us to repent and turn to him and trust in him as the only Savior and the only Lord and the only way to God And that truth will remain as long as humankind are here. And people need to hear this glorious gospel. And this reach, the reach of the gospel is so exciting and glorious. Paul's noting it's reaching all over the world. If this thing didn't catch on, maybe it's not true. (laughs) But it has caught on. I mean, it is reaching all over the world. It isn't localized. It isn't tribal. It isn't a cultural phenomenon. This is a human thing where God rescues people because they're people. Uh, You know, I I was telling the first service that almost every Sunday in the summer, after the service, I was standing down the front, somebody would come and meet me who didn't look anything like me and they were from another country or somewhere else and they loved the same Jesus I love and they were either visiting here for family or something for the summer and I met them and they love Jesus and they have nothing in common with me in terms of family background or how I was raised or location or anything like that but they discovered the gospel or should I say the gospel discovered them and they came to know Jesus Christ just like me And that's the glory of the gospel. It reaches the world. Other religions, the other major religions of the world are tribal and localized. Islam is virtually a part of the world religion. A localized part of the world religion. Judaism is a localized to the Jews religion, pretty much. Hinduism is a localized religion pretty much to the Indian people. And some spread of that Buddhism is a localized cultural religion. But Christianity is a global religion. Christianity reaches people of every race, every ethnic, every tongue, every language, every skin tone, everybody, everywhere in the world is reached by the gospel. It's reaching, Paul says, all over the world. And it is. And increasingly, our church is looking more like all over the world as well. Praise God. It's a testimony to us as we look. We get to look around and have a visual now. We didn't get a visual very, very much in the past. But now we get to look around in, in, in the visual and see this is actually true. Yes, the gospel's spreading all over the world. And it's doing life-transforming work. It's bearing fruit and growing. They could look at Paul and say, if Paul could come to know Jesus and his life could be transformed and changed, if a guy who actually was, was, was leading in the murder of Christians could actually come and know Christ, then sure, I can grow and fruit can be born in my life. I'm not too far gone. I haven't, you know, my background isn't too bad that I can't actually be changed by the living Christ and live a different life. Regardless of your background, regardless of what's happened in your life, Jesus Christ changes you from the inside out. Paul is a living testament to that. Christians don't just know differently or think differently or believe differently. We live differently because the Holy Spirit changes us to live differently. And Paul testifies to that. And let me wrap this up by answering the question, so how, since, how, how can this, how does this happen? How can we be thankful for the, the, uh, the hope we have. How can we be thankful for the gospel that we received? We're thankful because we remain, or we, we are thankful for the one from whom we learned the truth. 
Paul says that Epaphras brought this to you. Epaphras, you know, Paul had never even been to Colossae. Epaphras had likely visited Paul while he was spending three years in Ephesus doing uh, uh, ministry. For those of you who don't know the orientation of this look at geography, uh, Colossae is like this central Turkey. And Ephesus is out on the coast. This is the location in the world. He went there and he learned the, the gospel, the good news from Paul, and he took it back to his people and his people responded and a church was, was growing. And Paul writes here and says, it was Epaphras. You're, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who's a faithful minister of Christ. You know, I paused as I was, as I was studying this and I thought, you know what, I gotta be thankful and I gotta think about the, the, those who built the gospel into my life. Who told me about this? Who built this into my life? And I heard it and I understood it. That's what Paul says. Since the day you heard it and understood God's grace, you understood that, that God, God shed or, or showered his undeserved love upon you by sending Christ to die for you that you might be saved from your sins. Who told you that? Who's the person who did that? Be thankful for that person. I'm thankful for all the kids who heard the gospel this summer. Think of all those lives that heard the truth about Jesus Christ. Their whole lives are ahead of them. The, the, the servants of God who told, who, who told them the truth. Who, who are you telling? Who, who, are you, who, who will someday thank the Lord for you because you told them they heard and they understood because God enabled them to understand. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And who's going to deliver that word? How can they hear unless they have someone telling them? How can someone tell them unless they go to them? Not going to come in here. They may. God, God has led people in here and they've got saved. But most will not. We go to them. How will they hear unless we go to them? They heard fellow servants submissive to God, a servant. That's who we need. We need lots of servants here. We have a, a big ministry coming ahead of us in this new season and we need servants, God's people, people who will be servants and fellow servants of each other and say, I, I want to tell people. I want to take what God has given to me and I want to tell other people but I want to tell kids. I want to tell young people. I want to tell older people. I want to tell people about Jesus and I want to I help out. How can I do that? And, and he talks about not only a fellow servant but faithful ministers. Faithful to what? Faithful to the truth of Jesus the gospel of Christ, the unchanging message. Beloved, every one, every human, in every custom and in every setting, from every home, no matter whether a good home or a bad home, hard, troubled home or not, needs a way to God. They need to know. They need removal of guilt, they need their brokenness to be made whole. They may need their purposelessness to be given purpose. They need the fact that they're dead to come to life. It's a universal issue of the human heart. And the fear of death itself is common to all men, all women. And Jesus Christ alone and the promise of life forever with no sin, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more discomfort, no more pain, no more horrible circumstances, no more death is stored up for us in heaven. That's a promise. It's a done deal. It's there for you. Now, go and tell others the truth of Jesus Christ. Our Father and our God, this morning I just thank you so much for your amazing gift because it's grace of the gospel. The glorious gospel on a 9-11 day. The circumstances around us, O oh God, are not incredibly encouraging. But what is stored up for us in heaven 
is kept by the power of the living God. Our salvation is there. And so we walk in faith in Jesus Christ who alone is our Savior and Lord. We love one another because we are knit together by the same Holy Spirit, same family with a loving Father. We glory in the gospel because it is the power of salvation granted to us by the work of Jesus Christ. And we are grateful, O God, for every faithful servant that built into our lives this truth that we heard and you caused us to understand and now we live in confidence and security with great hope and thanksgiving because of the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. So is your hope stored up in heaven? Then the challenge of this, the opening salvo of this letter is, then live it out. Live it out. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today would be a very good day to come to faith in Him. The invitation is open. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this day. Our pastors will be here at the front. We'd love to talk to you about that. Or if some of you are in here going through a difficult time and just want to pray about resetting your heart this morning, resetting your heart on your hope that is in heaven, not on the circumstances that are warring against you, we'll pray with you about that as well. You come if you want to. There'll be a pastor in the connections room as well. You go there. So God bless you. Have a wonderful day, and we'll see you back here tonight. God bless.